All right, we're going to be talking about Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Esther. That's how it's spelled. Hooked on phonics worked for me. So, uh, in this lesson, we're going to look at three more historical books, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Uh, the first two, Ezra, Nehemiah, they're going to be telling us about how the Jews returned from exile uh, as God had promised 70 years previous through Jeremiah. Yet, as we just covered in the last lesson, ending Chronicles, it shows us that there is something still missing. Uh, things don't seem to be as glorious as were predicted by the prophets. Uh, where are the, the new heavens and the new earth that Isaiah spoke of, uh, which was supposed to come along with this return? Uh, why don't the people have the new hearts that Jeremiah predicted? Where is the glorious, magnificent temple that Ezekiel saw? Sorry, I just ate a piece of chocolate and now my mouth is watering. <laughs> so, uh, and further, where is everybody? Why hasn't everybody come back? Uh, that's a question that looms large in the book of Esther. Uh, the people we'll meet in that book are still in a foreign land. So after the exile, some things are just as predicted and promised, but many of God's promises have yet to be fulfilled. So, Ezra, Nehemiah, the context here. Uh, these two books uh, originally were just one book, so we're going to look at them that way. Uh, it's only since the early Middle Ages that they've been published as two separate books. So Ezra, who was a priest, he might have been the one who assembled the book. Uh, and the history recorded in, the, in these two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, it spans from the time the Jews began to return to Jerusalem around 538 BC to over 100 years after that first return. So Ezra himself gives us the historical context necessary to begin our study. In Ezra 1, verses 1 through 4, uh, the Jews had been in exile for 70 years when we read this. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, by Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So now the Jews are coming home. The exile is over. Uh, you can imagine the, the excitement, the hope, the optimism that filled the Jewish community that was here in Babylon. I was just thinking of, if I was a Babylonian, I would be finding this really weird. You know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. We're sending them to their God. Everybody, you know, we're uh, yep. talking about their God. It's like, yeah. Hello? Uh, uh, hello? <laughs> it's, it's not us. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we often talk about the book of Psalms being David's book. David wrote the Psalms. Not all of them. In fact, it was at this time that uh, we believe that Psalm 126 was probably written. 
um, says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. So that really would fit within the, the, the environment, the, the, the feeling that would be going around the Jewish community at this time. And then the redemptive historical context is pretty clear here. After the trauma of this exile, the people are reminded that God is still faithful to his promises of old. Uh, this is, uh, in effect, the resurrection of the nation. It's the reestablishment of the old Mosaic covenant that they were so accustomed to uh, and so at one point had loved but had turned away from. But as we're going to see, it's not the final coming of the kingdom of God or the institution of the new covenant, which was still yet to come. This is just one more earthly type of God's great work, which was yet to come. So as far as the theme, we can summarize Ezra and Nehemiah like this. God is renewing the covenant by restoring his people, the temple, true worship, and Jerusalem. But it's not the end, and it doesn't fulfill all the great prophecies. Thus, his people still look to the future. So as we've already mentioned, the return from exile was an exciting and joyous time for them. But it wasn't all they expected it to be. Uh, you know, hey, we're back in the land, but not the new heavens, not the new earth. Uh, it's more of a kind of a, an exile in the land, as we saw uh, in Chronicles, when we looked at Chronicles a minute ago. Some people have new hearts, but not everyone. And we have a new temple, but it's no picture of glory. It, it all leaves uh, the reader of this book uh, longing for something more. It left the people of Israel longing for something more, thinking there's got to be more to come. There's got to be more than this. You know, thinking back to Daniel, the 70 years are completed, so the physical exile is done. You know, they're like, everything should be as it was. But the 77s, until the Messiah arrives, have only just begun. And so the spiritual exile continued. So let's go ahead and walk through Ezra and Nehemiah. And we're going to look at some texts that most clearly demonstrate some of the, the key themes here. And as we go, we'll also get filled in on the chronology Sorry to say chronology. Going to get filled in on the chrono chronology of all that's going on here. The chronology. Uh, so God initiates and the people respond. Ezra 1 verses 5 and 6. What's important to notice about the very beginning of the book is the focus on God's faithfulness to his word and his promises to David. And therefore his commitment to his plan of redemption. Uh, again, what we just read back in verse 1 in the first year of Cyrus king of Persia that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus king of Persia notice Cyrus didn't just wake up one day and go I think I'm going to send them home uh, this reminds me of Proverb 20 I think it is verse 1 or 2 where it says the heart of the king is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord he turns it whichsoever way he will uh, so Again, back in that verse, we can hear the reference to the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah had prophesied that the exile would only last 70 years. And just as promised, 70 years later, God moved Cyrus's heart 
to allow the Jews to return home. Uh, and more than just allow it, he actually commanded it. He commanded them to return home. So we also see in verse 5 here that God moved the hearts of the people to go as well. You would think, well, why did he have to move their hearts to leave? I mean, this was their homeland. Not for most of them anymore. I mean, this is 70 years later. Um, for a large majority of them, this was probably the only home they ever knew. So, yeah, it did also take a move of God um, on, on their hearts. It says in verse 5, Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin. Remember, these was the southern tribe. That's all that's left. Uh, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. So God initiated this chain of events to restore his people, and they responded. And then in uh, verse chapter 1, verse 7 through uh, chapter 6, verse 22, we see the people returning and rebuilding. And so God starts to provide piece by piece, everything the people are going to need to rebuild their community and way of life uh, in the land under God's appointed leaders. To start with, you read in verse 7, Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed them in the house of his gods. In other words, the, the plunder that Nebuchadnezzar had taken, I mean, these were precious, valuable things of gold. And Cyrus says here, Take these back. They're yours. Uh, so th this was no small thing that Cyrus is doing here. Uh, it probably included the golden altar, golden table, golden lampstands, golden bases, uh, basins, massive bronze pillars, stands, uh, so large. Actually, as described in 1 Kings 7, these basins were so large they couldn't even be weighed. And this was an enormous amount of wealth that when God put it on Cyrus's heart, Cyrus gave it all away. He gave it all back. These things were irreplaceable for the Jews. Remember, they were in exile. They, they didn't have the means to reproduce these things. And so God miraculously restored them to the people so they could reinstitute proper temple worship again. Now, Josh, did you have a... I was, the, the thought of that being like, hmm. if I was your sitting there just watching all this gold go on in the temple, I'd be like, what's oh. going on? <laughs> yep. <laughs> Cyrus has lost his mind. That'd have to be their view. You know? Yeah. Yeah, giving away all this wealth, uh, all the labor uh, that the Jews provided, and yeah. So in chapter 2, verse 2, we see the mention of a man named Zerubbabel. I love saying that name. It's just fun. It kind of rolls. Zerubbabel. And you have to say it. You can't just say Zerubbabel. You have to say Zerubbabel. So what's significant about Zerubbabel uh, is that he represents God's faithfulness to the Davidic line. Uh, God had promised to David that he would have a descendant reigning over God's people forever. But at the end of 2 Kings, we saw the last Davidic king carted off as a prisoner to Babylon. And then here is Zerubbabel. He is a royal descendant of David. And we see this in the uh, genealogy uh, of 1 Chronicles 3. So the fact that he is leading God's people back to the land of promise means that God has preserved the Davidic line and he is still committed to his covenantal promises. Uh, another significant figure also in verse 2 is uh, Jeshua or some versions may say Joshua. Uh, verse 40 tells us that he is a Levite uh, which means that along with the line of kings the line of priests is also being restored. 
which is really cool. Here's God bringing out of exile, and there is still a rightful king and a rightful priest. Such an incredible foreshadow of our spiritual exile. Well, it, yeah, I won't get ahead. So, anyhow, it's just exciting. It's exciting. Um, and so we read in Leviticus, it's the priests who make atoning sacrifices and lead the people into worship of God. And so the restoration of the priesthood is equally important for restoring the people to the land uh, and to a right relationship with God as it is with them having a proper king. And of course, we also know this priesthood necessarily points toward a greater priest to come, as does the king, Zerubbabel, uh, pointing to a greater king to come. Uh, So the other things needed for worship besides the priests are an altar and a temple. And we read of their construction in chapters 3 through 6. Uh, so after some opposition from some decidedly unfriendly neighbors, the work was completed in 516 BC, which means it was just a little over 20 years after the people's return. So upon the temple's completion, we, re- we read of this climactic moment in uh, chapter 6, verse 22. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. And I love that. He had turned the heart of the king. Uh, All God's doing. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread is the Passover. It was instituted, as we know from what we've looked at before, it was instituted by God during the Exodus and meant to be kept by future generations to commemorate God's act of salvation and bring them out of Egypt. And so thus, it's only fitting that the worship resumes in the land at the temple with the Passover meal after God brought the people out again from under oppression to a Gentile nation. But as we've already established, not all is right. In Ezra 3.12, we read, But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses Old men who had seen the first house wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. So many were excited about about the new temple. It, It meant so much for them as a people. But there were some present who were old enough that they could still remember what the first temple looked like it, it had been destroyed been destroyed only 50 years earlier um even the exile itself started 70 years earlier remember it was they were taken out in waves so some of these people in their 60s 70s could have very easily they very easily remembered the magnificence of solomon's temple and this new temple didn't compare in its glory to what god's people knew before and so again uh, implication is that God is not done yet. There's got to be something better to come. And then the people sin. Ooh, surprise. And they repent. Ezra 7 through 10. At the beginning of chapter 7, the story takes a leap forward in time. We now find ourselves in the year 458 BC, nearly 60 years now after the completion of the temple, so about 80 years after their return from exile. And here, Ezra the priest is leading a second wave of exiles back into Jerusalem. Uh, And we learn um, about Ezra in chapter 7 that the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. 
uh, and this is such an important order of things that, that Ezra did, uh, a lot of Christian leaders could learn a great lesson from what he did here. Um, notice he studied it, then he did it before he ever presumed to teach it. He studied God's word, then he did it. In other words, he obeyed God's word, and then he went on to teach it. Just a little side thing that's good for us to keep in mind. Uh, what's that? <laughs> yes. Uh, a, lot, a lot of times I'm pretty convinced people start teaching it before they've studied it. But anyhow, um, when Ezra arrives back in the land, he finds that a lot of Jews have already started intermarrying uh, surround, the surrounding pagan nations, uh, which is a grievous sin, one they had already been judged for. It says in uh, chapter 9, After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with their abominations, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, yes, the, all the other bites that pastors make jokes with, um, the Egyptians and the Amorites, for they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons. So the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. In other words, this, faith, this faithlessness, the leaders have been foremost in this faithlessness. As soon as I heard this, Ezra says, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Now, you may notice here where it referenced them as the holy race. Uh, literally, that word for race is seed. Right, remember God's promise back in Genesis 3.15 that he would raise up a seed to crush the serpent's head. Remember, Israel was the carrier of that seed promise. And if they diluted their identity by intermarrying surrounded nations, you know, assimilating into the pagan culture, abandoning their unique relationship with God, they risked losing the promise. Uh, if Satan can't kill off God's people through exile, then he'll try to corrupt them by polluting their families and their worship. So, what happens? I ask, as you already know the answer. Uh, I think we should have a visual of that and Chuck should demonstrate it to us. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and hair from my head and beard and sat Jonas has nominated Chuck to give a, uh, a hair sample. <laughs> a hair sample. So, ow. <laughs> uh, so uh, Ezra, he prays acknowledging uh, the people's sin and God's holiness. Uh, and let's read verse 15 here. It says, O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. Notice the gravity of his confession and how well he understands the consequences of sin there. The, we stand here in our guilt. You are, you are just. Uh, none can stand before you because of our sin. Uh, sin separates us from God. It makes us unable to stand in his presence. As he said through Isaiah, uh, Behold, Israel, your sin has separated you from me. 
So their sin is confronted in chapter 9. In chapter 10, the people repent. And their repentance here is not just a mere acknowledgement of sin or a feeling of remorse. Uh, the word repent is about a change of mind or a change of heart that results in a change of action. Um, they work to re-separate themselves from the surrounding nations and send away the pagans from their midst. Uh, so remember, repentance is not just a feeling. It is an action to restore right behavior uh, before God. And so the lesson is that while the exiles have returned and rebuilt the temple, God has not yet completed his plan of salvation. Uh, you look at Ezra's prayer in chapter 9 at, at verse 8. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant uh, and to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. The remnant has returned, but it's only a little reviving from their bondage. When will more reviving come? Uh, And it, it can make us say, you know, This can't be everything. There must be more to come. Well, Nehemiah then returns, and the people rebuild the walls. We move into the book of Nehemiah at this point. In Nehemiah, we see another phase of reestablishing the people back in the land. Now, we're nearly 100 years after the first exiles return. Uh, Jerusalem's walls were still broken down. The temple had been been rebuilt, but Jerusalem's walls were still broken down. And this meant that the people, the Davidic line, the priest-led worship, these were all still vulnerable to the enemies of Israel, both militarily and morally. So when Nehemiah, who was actually a government official uh, who was still serving in Susa for the Persians, he hears about this, that Jerusalem's walls have still not been rebuilt, and he weeps and he sets himself to prayer. And what's interesting about Nehemiah's prayer that we see in chapter 1 is that, uh, like so many other prayers in the Bible, Nehemiah begins his prayer with a confession of sins. In verses 6 and 7, he says, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servants that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. And uh, he premises this request upon God's glory. Listen to what he he says here. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. They are your servants, your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power, by your strong hand. And so like... So many others we've seen, uh, we talked about it with Moses uh, way back when we went through Exodus. Uh, Daniel, uh, earlier today, the ultimate goal in our asking things of the Lord is that he might be glorified through giving them to us. It's not about our own merit, it's about the majesty and glory of God. So in chapter 2, Nehemiah sets out to return to Jerusalem. Uh, and This is about a decade after 
um, Ezra return. When he gets there, he convinces the people to work with him to rebuild the walls. On a quick side note, uh, he says in verse 20, Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Uh, Notice that divine sovereignty and human responsibility are here right next to each other. Neither is compromised nor ignored. Uh, And again, it's, it's no... Uh, problem for these inspired authors to, to juxtapose these two doctrines without apology. In other words, with, without any explanation or defense for why they said what they said. Um, which means those who earnestly love the word of God, exalt in and tremble at his sovereignty and live lives of moral responsibility and accountability because we know they are both equally true. So, Returning to our story, we see the Jews again experience opposition from their neighbors. Uh, And these enemies at first just mocked the Jews for undertaking such a large, difficult, and expensive task of engineering. But when they say that the people are, when they see that the people are faithfully and steadily making progress on the wall, their mockery turns first to alarm and then anger. And then finally, a plot to attack the builders. At first, they were making fun of them because they thought they were stupid for trying. Then they realized, oh, wait, they're actually going to succeed at this. We need to stop them. So Nehemiah responds by arming the builders, which deterred their enemies. Uh, I think Matt mentioned the other night how they they had their trowel in one hand and their sword in the other. Uh, so when they then they try and fail to undermine Nehemiah personally by slandering his rep- reputation. Uh, familiar tactic of the enemy to attack God's people, especially their leaders, with a frontal assault, uh, and sometimes through more subtle means. But God is faithful to protect his people. Uh, so first you have these physical attacks, and you have attacks on him personally and his reputation, and then... Uh, Nehemiah experiences opposition from within Israel. Um, some of the builders began to complain that the work was too expensive and they were too poor. So Nehemiah convinces the nobles and officials to stop charging interest and allow the work to continue. And in the end, uh, the people complete the wall around Jerusalem in less than a year, which is a pretty impressive uh, feat right there. And Uh, This section of the text ends with these encouraging words from Nehemiah 7, uh, verse 73. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. Um, And so this is very similar to uh, some of the key passages we saw in Joshua when the Israelites first took the land. So it really is a a re-beginning. And so now the people rejoice and relapse. Uh, It's that familiar pattern that we saw even back as far as Judges. Uh, So we come to the part that everything else has been driving towards, and that is the reestablishment of the covenant. Uh, They, meaning, we read this in chapter 8, they, which is referring to the Levites, 
read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Uh, so it's interesting to note the people's reactions here. Upon the hearing the law read and expounded, it says in verse eight, 6 that they shouted, Amen! Amen! Now, how many guys, if we were to read through the book of Leviticus, when we got done, you'd be shouting in joy, Amen! And yet, that was the people's reaction. It's over. It's over. <laughs> yeah. He's done. So, but in, then in verse 9, it says that they wept. So they went from shouting amen to weeping. Uh, and surely it was because they realized that they had greatly broken the law that was just read to them. But the priest told the people not to mourn, but to celebrate at the reading of God's word. Uh, it seems that the people were rightly mourning their sin and then rightly celebrating the receiving of God's grace in their lives. So it leaves us, it begs the question for us, do we have deep emotional reactions to the reading and the teaching of the word of God? Does it cause you to weep as every sinner ought to when confronted with the voice of an infinitely holy God? And at the same time, do you rejoice that this infinitely holy God would condescend to your level to speak truth to you, an unworthy sinner? It ought to. It ought to. So the long rebuilding renewal process is complete. And the people again bind themselves in the covenant with God. Uh, in chapter 10, verses 28 and 29, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands, the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and statutes." He was definitely a, a, a preacher because that was all one sentence, really long-winded. So uh, the people are in the land. The line of D David lives on, and therefore that means so does the seed of the woman. Uh, priests are making sacrifices on the altar. The temple is rebuilt. The walls around Jerusalem are rebuilt. Uh, the law is being publicly read and explained and explained. And the people formally renew their commitment to God's covenant. But that's not the end of the story, of course. The covenant is no sooner renewed and the people start breaking it again. So in chapter 13, we see the people violating the Sabbath. They work on God's holy day. Uh, and they start intermarrying with the surrounding nations again. So we again see the age-old problem. The law is not yet written on their hearts the people had returned and renewed the covenant but it was nothing like the kingdom they were expecting and hoping for as great as it is to be home it's clear that this is not the full arrival of the kingdom of god this is not the new covenant with new hearts and the new heaven and the new earth there is still sin and death in the world and so we're here at the end of the old testament's historical record and the heart is still wickedly sick wickedly deceitful above all things and beyond cure 
who can understand it? A greater salvation, greater than the Exodus, greater than the return from exile, must yet be coming. A greater kingdom, greater than David's, greater than Solomon's, greater than Ezra and Nehemiah's, must await. And then we move on to Esther. So what is the context of Esther? Uh, this book records the events of the same time as Ezra and Nehemiah, but in different place. Uh, the events of Esther take place between 483 and 473 BC. So it's, it's about 50 years after the first wave of exiles had returned to Jerusalem, but still a decade or two before Ezra brought his wave back. So it's kind of plunked right down there in, in the middle or so, uh, kind of towards the, the end. So the events, though, don't take place in uh, the land of the Israelites. They take place in Susa, which is Persia's capital, uh, while there are, where there are still Jews living there in exile. Uh, and one of the notable things about Esther that you've probably heard before is that God is nowhere mentioned in the story. Uh, apart from uh, some fasting, there's not even a religious note to it at all. Uh, with no talk of God, the covenants, the land, the temple, uh, not even David, the purpose and application of the book isn't immediately obvious. So if it doesn't mention any of that, what is its purpose in God's unfolding plan of redemption? Well, the story illustrates for us through narrative the truth that God cares for his people, that he will rescue his people from his enemies, and that God's people can ultimately rest assured that God will protect them even when we can't see how God is working. So that being the case, the theme of Esther is this. God protects his people even if we can't see how he is working. Nice, short, simple, to the point. God protects his people even if we can't see how he's working. So, in a world where God is invisible. Sorry, it started off with in a world. It had to be read in that movie trailer guy's voice. So, in a world where God is invisible, the faithful can often wonder if God is doing anything at all among us. But it's important to remember that God acts, God's acts of providence in our world are most commonly done with a hidden hand. Uh, in a way, it's quite easily overlooked uh, when we are otherwise just going about our normal lives. Uh, for the most part, God is working in his world for his people's sake in subtle ways that we often overlook. And sometimes it's that subtlety that makes his deliverance all the more powerful. So just by way of summary, in the first two chapters, we are introduced to a young Jewish girl named Esther who rises uh, to gain King Xerxes' favor such that he makes her his queen. And her cousin, Mordecai, who for some reason I've seen so many times in stories, he's referred to as her uncle. Um, that's why we're not reading a story, we're reading a historical account. He was her cousin, just in case you ever get confused on that. Mordecai overhears a plot to kill Xerxes, and so he informs Esther of this to alert the king, and the plot is stopped. Then chapter 3, the Jews face a crisis. A man named Haman is promoted in the king's court, and he's offended when Mordecai won't pay homage to him. And to exact his revenge, Haman doesn't go after Mordecai alone, 
but seeks to pass a decree to have all the Jews in Persia exterminated. And Mordecai persuades Esther to help. She petitions the king to spare the Jews, and he relents. Meanwhile, Haman is first forced to publicly, I love this, publicly honor Mordecai for having previously helped the king. And then, after his plot is thwarted, he's executed. Kind of, now that you said you're sorry, we're going to kill you. So, let's highlight just a few of the theological themes in the story. First, God will judge. Uh, God will bring judgment on the wicked. Uh, The villain here is Haman. He is guilty of pride and arrogance, attempted murder, attempted genocide. Worst of all, he has directed his sin specifically and directly against God's people. First mistake, uh, which is to say against God himself. Uh, His evil is not random or merely selfish. It is willfully, intentionally directed against the people and purposes of God. And so we can see Haman as an archetype of the enemies of of God. But we see in the story that in God's providence, all of Haman's plans backfire on him. Haman wants to humiliate Mordecai, but the king forces Haman to honor Mordecai publicly. Haman wants to murder Mordecai by impaling him on a pole, but the king executes Haman by hanging him on that very same pole. Haman wants to eliminate the Jews in a mass empire-wide genocidal pogrom, genocidal event. But instead, God uses the occasion to allow the Jews not only to defend themselves, but to triumph over their enemies. In chapter 9, verse 2, we read, The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. So God does judge the wicked, sometimes even in this life. So we as Christians should have a peace about trials in this life, confident in the hope of God's sure judgment against the wicked. And uh, God does work through circumstances. Note how Mordecai persuades Esther what she can do to rescue her people from the sentence of death. In chapter 4, he says to her, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Notice Mordecai wasn't putting his hope in Esther. He was putting his hope in God. He said, If you don't do it, trust me, God will deliver us, but from some someone else. He says, But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Probably a line most of us have heard. Mordecai believes that there is a purpose to Esther becoming queen and that her purpose is made clear by the opportunity that's presented to her to help save God's people. So God does use earthly instruments like people's actions to accomplish his plans. In fact, as as we look throughout scripture, uh, we'll notice how rare it is that his miracles take the form of just an abrupt disruption of history. There are times, um, but usually it is through earthly action. So rather, he uses people, situations, events, all quite naturally, very inconspicuously toward the end that he intends. Mordecai is telling Esther that she should understand herself and her queenship to be an instrument by which God will accomplish his purposes. 
So doubtless, God doesn't need any particular person or circumstance to achieve his purposes. I remember reading in a kid's book that said Abraham, or God needed Abraham. No, he didn't need Abraham, much like what Mordecai said here. You know what? God doesn't need you, Esther. God will deliver us one way or another. But perhaps God has put you in this place because you're the one he wants to use. So doubtless, again, God does not need any particular person or circumstance to achieve his purposes. He has ordained, though, in his graciousness to use people like Esther, to use people like you, well, and me, I mean, me too, uh, to spread his word and redeem his people. It could be you, Mordecai is saying, you could be that instrument, and that is exciting. And to that he says, who knows? Who knows? But we do know this. There are no accidents or coincidences in life. God guides and directs all of his creation. That means he guides the circumstances of your life as well. The same thing can be said to you that Mordecai said to Esther. Perhaps you were born at such a time as this, whatever circumstance it may be that you're in. Uh, we need to carefully examine all the situation God puts us in and look for opportunities for evangelism and service to the church. Our circumstances are one tool that God gives us, but we always need to interpret circumstances through scripture and godly counsel from other Christians. Um, but our circumstances are one tool that God can use uh, for understanding God's will in our lives. And lastly, we learn from this that God will save his people. The theological point here is that God zealously protects his people. This is one major theme, actually, of the, the entire Bible. And it's clearly the point of this little uh, event here we read about in the story of Esther. Uh, it is not always clear at the time how God is working or how things are going to turn out in the end. But God delivers his people and he always carries his redemptive plan forward. And note that the way God achieved Israel's deliverance in this situation maximized his own glory and it pretty much prevented either Mordecai or Esther from taking much credit or boasting about anything in fact God's purposes and salvation in this book are even deeper and more meaningful than events on the surface might suggest uh, do you remember when Saul's kingship failed that we that we read about it is when he refused to carry out God's command to totally destroy the, the Amalekites and their king Agag we find out in Esther 2 that Mordecai is a distant descendant of Saul and that Haman, plot twist, is a descendant of King Agag. Yeah. So you, you couldn't write that better in a movie, you know? What'd you say? I said Kanye. Oh, Kanye. <laughs> yes. Uh so in God's kindness, his rescue of his people results in redemption for the line of Saul centuries after he disobeyed that command. So again, it is no accident that these genealogical details are brought to light in this book. Uh, and so again, Christians today, we today should be able to rest content knowing that God's deliverance is a sure thing. And that while he may choose to use us as instruments at time, 
Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. The glory is his. All right, y'all. Let's take a five-minute break, and then we'll hit the last session and be done. I didn't hit stop recording. All right. Final lesson, lesson 13. By the way, uh, as we begin, there are handouts for the uh, essay instructions for this time. Uh, also one that is the syllabus for the next round that is coming up. And uh, so you can be looking at those. Uh, to those who are, and I know because of timing and schedules, we have a few people who've backed out of the active class part. Um, that makes sense because life gets busy in seasons. And as that changes in your own life, jump back in. If you can do one. Uh, if you haven't read the book, um, Just Do Something by Kevin DeYoung. It's a really good book. It's a, it's a short book. There, there's not a whole lot to it. Uh, Kevin DeYoung is a stinking genius, uh, but it is quick and easy to read and will help you think about God's direction in your own life. So it, you'll be encouraged by that. Okay. Lesson 13, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Introduction. We have reached our final lesson in the Old Testament. Yay. And there Amen. was great rejoicing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So we're going to finish by looking at uh, the three last minor prophets here. I'll warn you, despite some amazing pictures of God's final restoration in these books, uh, there's some pretty depressing themes as well. Uh, as we've been saying, it is clear that while the exiles had returned to the land, nothing much seems to have changed, and the spiritual exile continues. They're, they are still far from God, even though they are near to home. So Haggai accuses the people of having tragically misdirected priorities. Zechariah describes significant social sins. Malachi points out problems in every corner of society. Uh, among both priests and people, there are rampant unfaithfulness. There's irreverence, corrupt teaching, divorce, hypocrisy, widespread immorality, and more. The physical exile has finished, but the real exile continues. And in fact, the real exile for the Jewish people continues even to this day, if you stop and think about it. So, what are we going to do? Start with Haggai. Context of the book. Last lesson, we said that when the Jews first returned to Babylon, 538 BC, they were returning to rebuild the temple and reestablish their religion. And as we saw, uh, sure enough, they did begin that task, 536 BC, so just a couple years later, before encountering some opposition from their neighbors. Then, after overcoming the opposition, they resumed the work of the temple at 520 BC, finishing the job at 516 BC. All of that is in Ezra 1 through 6. He details that for us, and extra biblical history actually gives us those times and dates as well, so that we can be tracking that outside of Scripture as well. But it doesn't tell the whole story. Uh, the ministries of Haggai and Zechariah, why they were needed, are only briefly alluded to in Ezra 5 1 and 2. That resistance and hostility from the surrounding nations really prevented any reconstruction anywhere in Jerusalem. So when the problem gets 
solved, the people could resume construction. Now, remember, uh, as we, it helps that we're going through this giant chunk at a time. Uh, when they were taken away, all the major houses were burned. All, all the major civic buildings were burned. All the major religious buildings were burned. Everything's gone. Like you're literally returning to nothing. And so it is a long, slow process of rebuilding that they have come home to. So even though uh, the problem is solved, uh, the people could start reconstructing. It's a very slow process and they're slowly building up to rebuilding the temple, focusing on reconstruction of their houses instead, which if you just think in a practical sense, makes sense. We're not going to build some big uh, temple, some big place of worship when we don't actually have a place to sleep at night. Uh, You have to start by caring for your family and then building that. It's into that context that Haggai begins to preach. So Haggai 1 verse 4. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? And now we're not just talking about provision and protection for your family, but we're going to restore luxury for our family, ease and comfort for our family. Verses 5 and 6 then give us an insight into this redemptive historical context. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. Except, of course, in this room where the heater is cooking. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes in it. In other words, you are working on your own ease and luxury and it's just never enough because God is not blessing it God is not in it people have a great opportunity to rebuild the temple that was destroyed so long ago but think of all the means for their religion and God's plans for redemption and it's almost like they go eh that can wait we'll get to it you know eventually let's build something nice for ourselves our time and money are more importantly spent on our own find homes first. That's why Yahweh says to them, consider your ways. In other words, look at your attitudes and your actions and what they say about you. What what is that illustrating about what your heart actually loves and cherishes in worship? It all goes to show that the people may have returned from exile in Babylon, but their hearts are still in exile. They're still far away. The oppression of the worldly enemy may have ended, but the oppression of sin and selfishness lingers on. Friends, aren't we glad that's not a problem for us today? So theme of the book. Those who just said yes, see me after class. (laughs) With that, we've come to the theme of the book of Haggai. And we see that Yahweh will do at this moment in redemptive history. Here's the theme of the book. Yahweh is turning the hearts of his people to seek his glory and to please him in rebuilding his temple, which serves as a type. It's a picture. It's a foreshadowing of greater glory of the coming of the end times temple of the true uh, place where they say, and now our God dwells with us. Emmanuel, the God with us. This turning of God's people's hearts is seen in contrast to the former pursuit of their own glory, their own selfish pleasures in building their own houses. Now, remember, when we're saying that, we're not talking about a place of safety and protection for your family. That's absolutely vital. 
You can't have a whole nation of people who build a big lavish temple and then they die of exposure during the winter, right? That doesn't make any sense. This is, I am really spending it all on me. I'll get to God later, right? That, that's what he's pointing at here. The changed hearts of people foreshadows the day when all the people of God will be given new hearts, just as Jeremiah had prophesied in Jeremiah 31, 31. All right, so here's the first oracle. Haggai's overall, overall is divided into four different oracles, four different messages from God. So starting with the first one, his sermon to the people, chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hill and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Notice that Yahweh is telling them to think and then to act. Notice also that Yahweh says that their motivation ought to be that Yahweh would be pleased and glorified, not just so that we have this big, beautiful building, but that our God would be pleased and honored and glorified among the nations. Lately, who have they been pleasing? Themselves, right? It's all been self-focused. It applies to us as well. Remember Jesus' command that we are to let our light shine before men, that they may see our good deeds and glorify our Father who's in heaven, not ourselves, but to glorify our God because of the things that we do with our hands. Well, praise God, Haggai's prophecy was actually met with repentance. We don't always see that. We haven't seen that in, uh, in fact, a lot of the Old Testament prophets. 23 days later, chapter 1, verse 15, the work on the temple begins. So here's the second oracle. Haggai's second oracle comes less than a month later. In October of 1520 BC, I love that some of these we can actually say it was right here. Uh, the month when the Feast of Tabernacles was observed, the same feast during which Solomon's temple was dedicated. Now, by this time, it would be clear that the temple wouldn't be anything like Solomon's. Remember, all of when, when the Babylonians came in, they not only destroyed the buildings, they took all of the riches, all the riches of the king and the kingdom, all the riches of the temple. It's all gone. This is a poor man's temple in comparison. Remember in Ezra 3, where the older priests and the Levites who had seen the former temple weep when they realize how inferior this one will be. Enter Haggai's second oracle in chapter 2. And God seems... Uh, to really rub it in, as it were. Chapter 2, verse 3. Who is left among you who saw the house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Man, this doesn't look like anything. It, the judgment, even though they've been restored, still has ongoing consequences in their life as a nation. Why does Yahweh point this out? Why would God rub that in? To find that out, you have to skip down a few verses to verse 6. So this is chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so the treasure of all the nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Just an amazing picture of uh, God upending uh, the neighborhood bully kid and shaking him until all the riches fall out of his pockets and fall into the house of God. It's astounding as his people 
look at this pathetic excuse for a temple, God says it will not only measure up, but it will exceed the temple of Solomon. So characteristic of these last prophets that are just, they're not only pointing of what they will see in their immediate, immediate future, but that which is the ultimate future glory yet to come. Reality has kind of proved disappointing for them, even painful, as the people are lost in the backwaters of this great empire, and yet promises and a vision of the future that balloon even greater and more grand are on the horizon. So what's going on? Hold that thought until we get to the fourth oracle, and then we'll kind of reclaim that and land on that again. Before that, let's look at the third. The third oracle, chapter 2, verses 10 through 19, begins with a question about the Torah and ends with an encouragement to the people. The point of ruling on a legal question, what actions consecrate and what actions defile the people, is that holiness is not contagious. That's what he's getting at here. In other words, just working on the temple would not make the people holy. But uncleanness actually is contagious. Unholiness among the people would in fact contaminate the temple. A reminder that their hearts mattered even more than their actions. Of course, it is in Jesus that we see this reversed. In fact, only in Jesus that we see it reversed. Uh, When he touches that which is unclean, be it leprosy, an evil spot, even a dead body, the process is reversed. Instead of uh, him being contaminated by the sin or by the evil, he touches it and he cures and he frees and he resurrects, right? So back to Haggai, this third oracle ends in verse 19 with the encouragement that ultimately points to Christ. Though return from exile thus far has been an experience in hardship from this moment on, now that the people's hearts and priorities are right, God will bless. All right, fourth oracle. That brings us to the last oracle in this book, chapter 20, uh, chapter 2, verse 20 to 23. When will the temple actually exceed that of Solomon? Here's what he says, and by this point, this should be really familiar language to you. You should catch it right away. Chapter 2, verse 23. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts. What should that tell you from the minute that you see those verses? Day of the king. Day of the king. Future, the future, right? So it it probably has an immediate future fulfillment. But anytime you see a prophet saying, on that day, declares the Lord, you should go, oh, that day, all in capitals. That that future and that day, which still for us in the New Testament, lies in the future, like the return of Christ. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant. The son of the guy with a really weird name declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. This is is an immediate future for Zerubbabel, but also looking past, like I am going to make my people like a signet ring. That which is the stamp of authority of the king that we bear that. Zerubbabel, you'll remember, was the Jewish governor of Jerusalem when the Jews returned from Babylon. So the question is, will this great new temple be built during his day, or is he a symbol of something greater in the future, and how can we know? 
Well, he is indeed a symbol of something greater in the future because the focus of this verse is not so much Zerubbabel himself, but on the family line that Zerubbabel stands in. You remember which famous Israelite we mentioned this earlier, Zerubbabel is descended from? King David, right? He's a descendant of David, and it's this continuation of this Davidic covenant that God promised that the son of David would sit upon the throne forever, and now Zerubbabel is leading in Jerusalem, but he's pointing to the son of David who would be the signet ring of God. This is the reversal of Jeremiah 22, 24 to 25, where God describes Zerubbabel's ancestor, Jehoiakim, as the signet ring that he will pull off and discard. Like, you were my stamp of approval, pull it off, I'm done with you, right? Uh, These here are the old prophecies concerning David's house and David's greater son. And that greater son we know is the Lord Jesus. So here, I... I just hope one of the things that comes out of this week of study is that every single time that you catch yourself reading in scripture on that day, on the day of the Lord, something like that, your mind will immediately fast forward to what is to come and immediately point to Christ. As we know from that perspective of life after Jesus coming, the temple that Yahweh builds through his son is not a literal physical temple, but a temple of people that we are the temple of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 6, 16. What agreement is there with the temple of God and with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk with them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, have been built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. Can you hear the echo of the Old Testament temple in there? And now he's saying, we're not looking for a physical temple. God's building it out of people. God's building it out of you. We exist to bring pleasure and honor and glory to God. So Haggai serves to encourage work on the temple in his present context, but also to point to the ultimate fulfillment that the work as God builds in his new temple Greater than Solomon's indeed, the church of Jesus Christ, through Solomon's son, the Lord Jesus. All right, let's look at Zechariah. Context of the book of Zechariah shares the same historical context as Haggai, beginning his preaching only a few months after Haggai does. Continuing to prophesy during the time that the temple is being completed, Uh, Prophecies of the last five chapters are not dated. They could have been delivered or written after the temple was completed. It's a little bit unclear how that falls out. That being said, the redemptive historical niche that Zechariah fills is slightly different than Haggai's. If God's going to send multiple people uh, with a similar message at the same time, it's because they're probably coming at it from slightly different perspectives. Zechariah explains what the events since the return from exile mean for the future and for the nation's messianic expectations. He takes the current situation and uses it to paint a greater and grander picture of the future. Theme of this book, Yahweh has restored the old ways to prefigure and prophecy 
new prophesy new ways in the future, a grand restoration from spiritual exile by the coming Messiah. So God's sort of reworking that which is old to more accurately say this is what's coming when Jesus comes. Zechariah is full of many visions that can be really confusing to the reader. But if you understand his context after the exile and his redemptive historical context as a time of expectant rebuilding, and if you see the messianic emphasis, well then some of those strange visions and prophecies start to make a little more sense. Zechariah's current situation serves as a vehicle for speaking of the coming king. All right, so here's a a real quick outline of the book. Zechariah 1, verses 1 through 6, is his call to repentance. Uh, 1, 7 to chapter 6, verse 8, Zechariah's vision of the night. Chapter 1, 7 through 17, the people restored. Uh, 18 to 21, protection restored chapter two the temple restored the high priest restored chapter three uh, the king restored in chapter four honesty restored chapter five sin purged at the end of chapter five the day of the lord chapter six Uh, zechariah six nine through fifteen the coronation of the high priest chapter seven and eight a question about fasting chapters nine through fourteen the coming of the king and the day of the lord All right, so there is a lot that we could look at in this book. As with most of these things, these are a 30,000-foot flyover. But our time restraints, uh, we can only sadly look at little bits and pieces out of them. Uh, Perhaps the best place to go, given our limitations, is chapter 6. If you've heard Zechariah's famous vision of the night and wondered what all those images mean, uh, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but we're going to skip over them. We're going to do something similar to what we did when we looked at the book of Revelation in our verse-by-verse study on Sunday morning, which was to say, we're not going to explain what all those things mean because that's not the point. The point was to cast a grand picture of our God and his sovereign rule over all things. Uh, What we are about to read right now may help us make sense of that long vision that precedes this prophecy in the text. So Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 through 15 and the word of the Lord came to me, take from the exiles Heldai, Tobjah, and Jedidiah. Is it Jediah? That's what it is. Jedidiah, he's from the south, I think. <laughs> uh, who have arrived from Babylon and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from this place. He shall build a temple for the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear the royal honor, shall sit and rule on his throne, and there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobjah, and Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass. You will, if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. All right, so what does that mean? Just a couple things. Notice verse 11. 
that a high priest is given a crown. That's a significant departure from the rest of the Old Testament, where there was a clear line of distinction between prophet, priest, and king. It's very similar to the three branches of our government today. There were checks and balances and accountability before God and the people that each had that could not be crossed over. Uh, Just by way of remembrance, uh, what was the thing that got the kingdom ripped away from the first King Saul? He tried to be a priest, right? He offered sacrifices uh, when the prophet and the priest were late in arriving. And so he said, I'm good enough to do both jobs and the kingdom was ripped from him. Now we have a high priest who's given a crown. Notice also at the end of verse 13 that the high priest is seated on a throne. Again, a significant departure. What type of person is usually given a crown and sits on a throne? The king, right? That Simple. Uh, But this Joshua is a priest. So what does that mean? In the future, the high priesthood and the kingship over God's people will be combined into one person. Again, we're looking through and past the immediate fulfillment of this and seeing an ultimate fulfillment in the one person who here described is a branch which as you just read over it is kind of an interesting and strange way to talk about a person verse 12 described as a branch but that's a messianic title that we find in second samuel in isaiah in jeremiah in zechariah and quoted in Hebrews 7 by the writer of the Hebrews. Lastly, in verses 12 and 13, notice that Zechariah says that this messianic priest king will be the one building the temple we just heard Haggai speak about. Of course, the one who is the head of his temple, his church, is none other than Jesus Christ. Hebrews 5, 5 and 6, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed By him who said to him, you are my son today, I've begotten you. He also says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. But a little while later, the writer points out that David and his descendants are the tribe of Judah. Hebrews 7, 14, for it is evident that our Lord is descendant of Judah in connection with that tribe. Moses says nothing about the priest. Why? Because it's out of the tribe of Judah who's going to come. The king, right? The point of all of it is Jesus' priesthood is greater than any other priesthood in Israel and that his kingship is forever. We're told that in Psalm 110. These two parallel streams of the Old Testament, the kingship and the priesthood, travel in tandem yet separate courses. So they're they're tied together, but until we reach Christ, they really don't unite. It's not until the Messiah comes And it's prophesied here in Zechariah. On the cross, Jesus, the Christ, Jesus, the Messiah, sacrificed his own blood in a priestly manner. He offered himself to God, propitiated the wrath of Almighty God, which was stirred up by the sins of his people. Then he rose triumphantly from the grave to sit down on an eternal throne from which he rules the entire universe evermore and invites everyone to come and bow the knee in faith and submission to this great priest king. Just kind of awesome. Now, lest you think that this tidbit in chapter 6 is just uh, pulled at random, it's worth pointing out that the first eight chapters of Zechariah follow a loose chiastic structure. Surprise, surprise. Who saw that coming, right, in uh, Hebrew literature? 
uh, just as we saw in the book of Daniel. Remember, the main point of a chiasm is found in the middle. It's all about the center of it, and then we have mirror reflections on either side. That's the section that we just read together. So in many ways, this is the explanation and the culmination of the seemingly confusing visions before and the vision of the night that we're also going to track through this. Uh, These chapters contain a series of scenes that all seem to focus on something restored after the exile, which all point forward to this day when the priesthood and kingship are truly reestablished. As they're combined in one great high priest, one king forever. So this idea of a priestly king really does summarize the first eight chapters of this book. But starting in chapter nine, the book changes as the book focuses more intently on God's final redemption for his people. The enemies of God's people are judged and God's people are cared for. And all this through the messianic figure at the center of these passages. I love as we look at redemptive history throughout the Jewish people, at progressive revelation throughout the Old Testament, uh, it's as if God is tightening this focus. At the beginning, all we know is the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. And by the time we're reaching this final uh, culmination in some of these late minor prophets, it's as like we're fine-tuning and focusing this light down onto Christ. Uh, we have this flashlight at home that is, it is reasonably bright. It, it's one of those, you know, ridiculous, like melt your eyeballs out type, type flashlight. Uh, and it can illuminate an entire room until you adjust the focus of it. And then it takes all that super bright light and shines it down into one little pin hole. That's what progressive revelation is doing for christ we start with a super broad vision and now it's narrowing 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 down in on the messiah so through all these messianic figures at the center of this passage here's here's what we get Uh, this figure that starting in chapter 9 will be humble he'll ride on a donkey chapter 9 verse 9 he will put an end to wars and proclaim peace 9 10 but he must first be rejected and oppressed, 13.7. After his oppression, though, he will triumph and avenge himself on his enemies, 14.3. The Lord will be king over all the earth, 14.9. Even his former enemies will come worship him, 14.16. And all the people, even the lowest cooking pots, will be holy to the Lord, 14.20 and 21. Looking forward, of course, to Christ alone. This is actually where Zechariah leaves us, looking forward to a time beyond the exile when this priest king will come. And that's how Matthew opens his book, waiting for the exile to finally and completely end with the coming of the priest king forever. Last book in the Old Testament, Malachi. Context of this book, Malachi lived at at roughly the same time that Nehemiah did in the late 5th century BC. His main concern is that he sees the people of God drifting into secularism. They don't have hearts and minds for Yahweh, but rather for the world. Now that the people are back in the land and the temple is rebuilt, there is laziness and a movement towards spiritual lethargy. And you know, Malachi is the last of the Old Testament books in our English Bible. Historically speaking, Malachi is also the last prophet before Yahweh becomes silent for 400 years in the intertestimonial period. Which is shocking. Think of all of these prophets that have come stacked one on another. 
prophesying, 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 silence. Just imagine what that was like for God's people. There won't be another prophet speaking Yahweh's words until John the baptizer comes. And interesting enough, Malachi will actually prophesy about the ministry coming from John. It's almost as though Malachi knows he's the last prophet before John the Baptist. In other words, the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord won't be long now. Chapter 4, verse 5. So here's the theme of this book. Yahweh's people are beginning to drift away again, so Yahweh will need to come visit them soon. They're drifting away. God himself will come to them soon. But before he comes, he will send messengers to prepare his people for the day of his coming. Malachi is a fascinating book to work through, in part because it's structured in a unique style that we haven't seen before this. The book takes the form of six disputes between Yahweh and his people, almost like a courtroom style. The people first drag God into court to accuse him of breaching the contract. Chapter 1, verse 2. How have you loved us? You said you were going to be our God. You said you were going to be uh, in covenant with us. How have you loved us? How have you kept your end of the bargain? Only to have the tables turn dramatically and find themselves facing down the withering stream of accusation from Almighty God. Let's look at just a couple of these disputes. Chapter 1. Verses 10 to 14. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name is my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered in my name in a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering? Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices the Lord that which is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Just an incredible, frightening warning. The people thought they could bring the lame of their flocks, the least that they had as an offering. They thought that all that mattered was going through the religious motions of what they were doing. That was the spiritual duty that they owed to God. But God says, don't you know that I'm a great king? Don't you understand that my name is feared among the nations? God's people have no mind for the Holy One of Israel, just unenthusiastic, apathetic, religious drudgery. How many of us are also rebuked by Yahweh's words here? On the days we have to drag our sorry butts out of church to get to church on a Sunday morning. Now, I'm not talking about Chuck, who's about to spend an entire night uh, up, <laughs> right? But uh, how many of us in just our normal, everyday routine so prioritize everything that we don't have time? Man, I would love to do that. I'm just way too busy. 
Well, not only have God's people failed him through empty religiosity, they have broken the covenant both with him by worshiping other gods and with each other through broken marriages. So worshiping other gods, chapter 2, verse 11, through broken marriages, chapter 2, verse 16, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Alternative translation there, God says, I hate divorce. Either way, verse 16 is a powerful statement characteristic of this book. The people accuse God of injustice. Chapter 2, verse 17, where is the God of justice? To which God replies that justice will come. Chapter 3, verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. Be careful of calls for justice for our lives. Cry out for justice before a holy, righteous God. God's people have robbed him, chapter 3, verse 9, by not bringing the whole tithe to him. Sharp words for those of us who do not take giving seriously, who view ourselves as our own master and provider. In fact, they speak harsh words against Yahweh, chapter 3, verse 13. Since saying God doesn't give them what they want, it's futile to serve him. What's God's response? Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze. Now, what should we be picking up from this? There could be a day in their immediate future, but when a prophet keeps re repeating the day, the day is coming, the day is coming, man, this is, this is the escalating revelation so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So this brings us to the end of the Old Testament. God's wrath still burns brightly, but his promises to his own people are yet held on high. Yet we're as confused as ever over how all this can be reconciled. God says that his people will go out leaping like calves, like some ridiculously happy animal, and yet his people seem incapable of doing anything but shaking their fist at God and spitting in his face. Of course, we have plenty of hints as to where the solution will lie, both with us, the new heart of Jeremiah, the pure lips of Zephaniah, and the one who will do these things, the suffering servant of Isaiah, the priest king of Zechariah, the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven that we saw in Daniel. Plenty of hints, but still no progress. And then it's going to fall silent. Lots of foreshadowing and then silence we've seen the sinfulness of man traced out from the fall of genesis 3 to the revolting and disgusting detail when we've seen god's promises begin small 
one who will crush the serpent's head. But crescendo, even as reality becomes even more depressing, prophesying a new heaven and a new earth in Isaiah before the exile. (laughs) Consider that. All of this, this Messiah is coming and I will create a new heavens and a new earth. By the way, see you later. Bye-bye. Off to exile you go. A heavenly temple in Ezekiel. And then exile and the earthly temple is burned and destroyed. A world peace and perfect fellowship between God and his people as the exile draws to an end. Even as God's people sink into immorality, idolatry, and political obscurity, essentially disappearing off the spiritual and world maps. Through it all, we've seen God's patience, his forbearance, his incredible patience as he continues to hold out his perfect plan in the face of a people who deserve anything but patience. The physical exile is completed. The 70 years are done, but the spiritual exile continues. Daniel's 70 weeks have just begun. So where does Malachi, this last prophet, leave us? Chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. A command to continued faithfulness. Remember what I've said in the the past and be obedient to it. Remember the principle of immediate retribution from Chronicles. God will continue to hold each generation accountable for its actions, each individual accountable for their actions. Even in this holding pattern in, pattern in which we're left at the end of the Old Testament, verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree and utter destruction. Those last words should send chills down your spine a decree of utter destruction it's in the context of uh, turning fathers towards their kids and kids towards their fathers within this covenant family of god he said that will be so broken if there's a lack of faithfulness that i will utter a decree of complete destruction in other words it's just curse and annihilation so where did we begin in genesis 3 with a curse And after all that we've seen and done in the Old Testament, where do we end? The same curse. What is our fate apart from God's mercy? It's curse. It's judgment. We are under God's curse apart from Christ. And yet what is the sign of continued hope? A new Elijah coming to turn our hearts. A messenger, chapter 3, verse 1, preparing the way for Yahweh who comes on that great and awesome day. And so where do we pick up the story in the first words of the book of Mark? Quoting from Malachi and then from Isaiah, Mark chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. The Old Testament finishes exactly where it begins, stuck in curse. Mankind unable to free themselves from the bondage of sin and curse. Even though so much has happened along the way. So much revelation of God and his heart for his people, yet God's vision of redemption has become more and more clear. It's just waiting to take hold. We know it's there. 
That we know more at the end of this about this coming one, this Messiah, the Son of Man, the, the anointed of God. That's why when Jesus comes, uh, the Jews have a really clear understanding of what Messiah would be, who this person was. One of the reasons they rejected him is because they misunderstood some of that. It's just waiting to take hold. And so when a man named John begins to preach and baptize in Mark chapter 1, verse 4, this new Elijah, we know that the time has finally come. What's Jesus' message? Repent, for the kingdom of God is what? At hand. Man, we've waited for this for thousands of years. God has promised, God has unveiled revelation, and then there's been 400 years of silence, and the next message we hear, repent, it's now, it's right now. Man, praise God for its faithfulness to his promises. Praise God in our dark days. He's faithful to his promises. Salvation is now. There's there's coming even greater. What we see right now is the glory of Christ. What will be? (laughs) Man, we're seeing through a, a glass dimly. Right now we see Christ. Our eyes are fixed on him. Therefore, he is the hope and the culmination of all that has come before in the Old Testament. All of the Old Covenant has been pointing to him. And when the New Covenant comes, it's like it just wraps up the Old in glory and puts Jesus out in front of us. He is our hope, our Savior. He's our priest. He's our prophet. And he's our King. Lord, I thank you for the glory of your word. How majestic when we step back and consider the broken sinful men that you used to write and record this revelation. When we consider the amount of time that has gone by that we've looked at in the Old Testament. How spread out they were. How different their circumstances were. And yet they have one message that keeps getting clearer and clearer and clearer. And that is our God has sent a Savior. There is one who is coming. We rejoice as those who are so privileged. We get to see what prophets and kings and even angels long to look into. We look clearly into the face of Jesus, our Savior. Oh God, would our hearts marvel and worship at that. Let let us rightly see and be humbled and bowed before him and yet bold to stand on every promise that has been stacked up over generations and then handed to us, not because we've earned it or deserved it, but because the same grace has adopted us into this story, into this family. God, may our lives do what you called your people to do throughout the Old Testament, and that is live in such a way that all of the other nations, all the other gods would see the glory of the one true God put on display because of us, because of our lives and our family and our church, the power of your church and gospel throughout the nations. Oh God, put yourself on display, we pray. Amen. Amen.